Recruiting terrorist. It happens online and the old-fashioned way, face to face. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. I'm in Pakistan, a country buffeted by war. This is where Osama bin Laden was killed by American SEALs, where American drones wage a continuing war against militants along the Afghan border. And it's a country that has been a fertile recruiting ground for al-Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIS, and a host of terrorist groups that you've likely never heard of. In this show, I'm going to talk with a Pakistani who was radicalized as a child and now works to prevent other children from being drawn to the dark side. But first, Facebook and terror in Pakistan on American Fault Lines. America and the world are more divided than at any time in recent history. Red and blue, rich and poor, terrorist and peacemaker. For more than four decades, Lawrence Pintak reported from the world's fault lines for CBS News, Time, AP, and many others. From Armenia to Zimbabwe, the White House to the House of Saud, covering wars, coups, and the first suicide bombs. Pintak was also the founding dean of the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication at Washington State University. Now he's taking an in-depth look at the issues that divide our world on American fault lines. Broadcasting from the Pacific Northwest, Pintac will bring a perspective that breaks through the New York-Washington news narrative and the fact-free zone of the alt-right media, seeking solutions, not shouting matches, and giving you a whole new take on the news. In the U.S., Facebook has been heavily criticized for failing to remove violent and extremist content. Now it's also under siege here in Pakistan. The nation's largest newspaper, Dawn, recently reported that dozens of outlawed militant groups are operating openly on Facebook and other social media platforms. John Zeb Haq led the team that broke the story. Thanks for joining me. So, so what's the headline? You're a journalist. What's the headline on this story? Well, it's actually a fairly simple story at the end of the day. It's 41 banned organizations banned by Pakistan are operating on Facebook, uh, whether in the form of official accounts or whether in the form of fanboys who have created pages around them. And the bottom line is, how do they get away with it? Um, Well, as it turns out, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, From what we've seen, they're operating with a fair amount of impunity, They don't seem to care that they are in public because, you know, you could easily use Facebook uh, in private. Uh, But what we found, for example, is that in terms of Facebook groups, there were more open groups, uh, public groups, than, say, closed groups, which is the other option. Uh, And that, I think, is quite telling of the fact that uh, they're not too worried about operating there. The interesting fact about this is that when we looked at the users inside these groups or following these pages, we also noticed, and uh, with fair amount of certainty, we can say that these were uh, legitimate users. So it's not like they had uh, fake profiles, obviously fake profiles. Uh, we got details as far down as their university. Uh, uh, you know, we examined a lot of profiles and we saw that... Uh, I mean, they look legitimate. So that's that's also one telling factor on this front. And, and people are actually liking these. So they're not trying to hide their affinity for them, right? 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's what we saw. Uh, and that's not the only thing. Uh, lots of them like multiple pages uh, around the same area, whether it's, uh, you know, sectarian or whether it's, for example, the Baloch separatist movement in Pakistan. And uh, that, that was like a very interesting trend we noticed over there. And what are the key themes on these pages? Well, I mean, to keep it short, uh, the main themes are generally, uh, you know, uh, lauding their movement, uh, you know, uh, talking about their heroes, any militants who have, uh, are either active or actually a lot of it was about those who have died. And the focus, of course, for many of them is anti-state. Uh, some of them, to some extent, the ones which have a focus on, uh, you know, uh, Kashmir, uh, were critical of India, and uh, then the rest were sectarian in nature. So whichever minority group they were attacking, particularly the Shias. So explain the, the divisions in Pakistan. There's, there are a host of militant groups representing a full spectrum of, of political and religious and ideological views, isn't there? Yes, there is. And uh, keeping it close to this story, I think it's very important to point out that one particular uh, group uh, was vastly uh, represented in this to the extent that it almost formed 50% of all pages, groups, and users that we saw. And this group is the Ali Sunnat Wal Jamaat, which is a Sunni faction, uh, so it's a sectarian faction, which is very, very operative on ground. So it was quite, uh, you know, it was expected that they would be among the top in Facebook. And uh, yeah, their focus is mainly on, uh, you know, proliferation of their message. A lot of it is hate speech targeted against, uh, you know, the Ahmadi community, for example, minorities, or Shias in Pakistan, uh, among other things like, for example, the issue of blasphemy and that people should be killed uh, for blasphemy. Uh, when you club the Ali Sunnat Wal Jamaat with the Sipahi Saba Pakistan, this is a much older uh, Sunni sectarian outfit. Uh, it actually changed its name to Ali Sunnat Wal Jamaat. So it's actually one group. So if you actually look at it in that respect, we are talking about almost 60% of everything we examined uh, was of this one particular area, which is kind of representative of Pakistan in general, being all uh, majority Sunni. And you found that some of the users are, I mean, this one, one might think, all right, these are people out in the tribal areas, in poor areas that, that uh, have affinity to these groups. But you found some users are based at universities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, most of the users that we examined were all from the big urban centers. So we're talking about Karachi, Lahore, Islamabad, and Quetta. Quetta featured actually quite highly, uh, given its population. So, and part of the reason for that is the Baloch separatist movements, the ones who feel the province should be a separate state. Uh, and this is the province of Baluchistan, for the, for the listeners, the province of Baluchistan, which has been restive and trying, and it, there's a movement to secede. Yeah, exactly. And the other interesting fact that we found was that a lot of them had given their universities. So we could see that a lot of them were uh, based in government universities. Honestly, it was very surprising uh, in some respects that they were so public. We speculated that one part of it is impunity. So they feel they are not going to be, there's no action going to be taken against them. 
And the other one might just be a lack of knowledge, just plain ignorance about how far someone can access your information on Facebook, uh, which was an interesting, uh, we really wondered about that, but of course we couldn't get into it for the study. But coming back to the point about urban centers, I'd just like to add that again, in Pakistan, we have perhaps 20 to 25% uh, people and internet population of the entire population. And most of this, because of the infrastructure, is based in the urban centers, which is also why you probably see this result. And a lot of that internet penetration is on mobile phones, isn't it? Yes, yes. Uh, in fact, if you move down the social strata, it's almost entirely uh, mobile. The government's been cracking down on bloggers and other dissidents online. How, what's the explanation for them not going after these sites? I have a feeling, and again, you know, I'm basing this on 10 years of experience working in the online space, which I've also been covering. Uh, our government hasn't had a clear policy uh, with regards to the online space. So what you see is ad hoc decisions about who to crack down on and when. So, for example, when the Baloch separatist issue is in the spotlight, they'll crack down on them, they'll shut down a few blogs, they'll reach out to Facebook and maybe have a few pages blocked or shut down. Of course, that's not clear because Facebook is not transparent about such requests. But that's generally been uh, the way Pakistan operates in terms of the online space. So as a result, what you would have is that a lot of these pages, groups, for example, on Facebook, would just come right back with a different name. That's a problem globally, but in Pakistan it's particular to the fact that we don't have uh, very clear guidelines and not even the capacity and the resources to, uh, you know, make this happen. We need to take a break. Um, I'll be back from Pakistan with Jahan Zaib Haq, the digital editor at Dawn Newspaper. I'm Lawrence Pinsack, and this is American Fault Lines. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. I'm in Pakistan. I'm talking with Jahan Zaib Haq, the digital editor at Dawn Newspaper, who's written about how Facebook is being used by radical groups in Pakistan. Before the break, we were talking about the fact that the government just hasn't had the resources, um, and it's been kind of opaque in terms of what their requests have been to Facebook. What's Facebook saying about all this? Well, Facebook is saying absolutely nothing, which is quite expected of it. Uh, they haven't been transparent, whether you look at it globally, they release a report annually, uh, sorry, uh, twice a year, and uh, all it lists is uh, the number of requests and to what extent Facebook has complied to a certain degree. Uh, this has been a great issue in Pakistan, not just uh, with regards to banned outfits, it's also been an issue with regards to political speech and free speech, because we've often seen that uh, on the political front, we've had uh, pages blocked and banned, and it's been reported in the past. Uh, of course, none of these were related to militant outfits. And uh, again, we don't know to what extent Facebook complied and why they complied or what were the reasons behind it all. So yeah, Facebook Have they cooperated? Has been, yeah, Facebook's just been... Uh, uh, unhelpful on this front. Had they cooperated with authorities in the past? Uh, we we believe so. Uh, to the uh, the maximum they've actually said is that we comply with whatever the government and its associated body, the PTA, 
uh, sends us, and that's the sum of what they've ever said. In in the West, there's lots of talk of Twitter being a a a, a, a main yeah I can't talk anymore. Twitter being a, a vehicle through which a radicalization happens, but Facebook is more influential here, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the Facebook population is in the tens of millions. I don't remember the exact number, but I believe it's almost as big as the internet population of Pakistan. Wow. So everyone is on Facebook. And if you compare Twitter, I mean, it, it, it really doesn't have impact, uh, especially when it comes to Pakistani society. Uh, Why do you think everyone, that is? Everyone in uh, Pakistan considers Facebook the internet. I mean, once you move slightly down the social strata. One of the reasons is the fact that Facebook very early on uh, offered an Urdu, uh, you know, the local language edition of Facebook. So you can switch the language and just use it. Uh, the other reason is that because of the uh, language limitation and most people in Pakistan do not uh, comprehend, they can't read or write uh, or speak English, they have a very limited uh, experience of the Internet. So for them, Facebook has really become the face of the Internet. Uh, and that's where they get all their information. And that's why uh, the presence of militant outfits was particularly of our interest uh, in that space. Twitter, yes, they exist on Twitter. But because of the sheer difference in the possible reach, the possible influence, uh, we looked at Facebook in particular. And, and Facebook is more influential than just a random website, an organization having a general website because of the, the ability to spread the message virally through Facebook. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, and this is a common trend. If you look at just a video you would post on YouTube or on your website, it's just not going to have the reach we have seen, uh, you know, if you post it on Facebook. I mean, I'm a digital editor, so I've seen this trend myself. And that's what I follow. You know, if I post something to Facebook, it's going to get shared, it's going to move around, and that's, that's just more convenient. Uh, not just for media outlets, apparently, it's also very convenient for militant outfits. And your, your article created a bit of an uproar in Parliament, didn't it? Yes, yes, it did. Uh, you don't get to see that very often, but by the evening, uh, a couple of our political parties, the PPP and the PTI, had uh, their representatives inside a national security uh, committee meeting. Uh, and they, well, they just pretty much flashed the article and said, we want a response from the government on this. And uh, what is the interior ministry doing about this issue? So that was, that, was, that was kind of good to see that, you know, sometimes the story really does have impact. And what's the government saying? Well, the government has not responded very clearly. I do know from some other sources that they are working on the issue. The FIA, which is one of our units, which is principally supposed to work on cybercrime, is kind of uh, replicating uh, some of what we've done uh, to see how they can tackle the issue, but nothing clear and nothing which has been uh, shared publicly. We have about a minute left. Um, in, in broader terms, I mean, there's been a lot of concern on the part of the government um, about Digit, the spread of digital information. What, what's the shape of the, the increased pressure on the digital space here? 
Well, I mean, as I mentioned, free speech is probably one of the biggest problems here when it comes to Pakistan. Uh, you know, the government, if anything, has in the past lauded how China and Saudi Arabia uh, kind of uh, regulate the Internet. So we can see where uh, their interest lies. Uh, and the problem is that they often use, so for example, I was worried that my story would be used in a way to, uh, you know, say, yes, see, we need more crackdowns on Facebook uh, because that's the problem. It's not that they're banned outfits. It's the problem that they get a space to speak. Uh, Kill the messenger. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's, uh, that's the worrying aspect in Pakistan, that we're going to see more and more censorship. Uh, there's also the big worry that the cybercrime laws, and it was just recently set up as part of the National Action Plan Against Terror, uh, this cybercrime law is geared more towards cracking down on the ordinary citizen than it is geared towards uh, any any other aspect of the digital space. For example, even sexual harassment is barely addressed over there. We're going to need to wrap up. That's all the time we have. Thanks so much for being with me. No, no, thank you for having me. In the days after my conversation with Hawk, London was shaken by the third terrorist attack in three months. Yet another homegrown extremist killed eight people and injured dozens of others. A van plowing into a crowd of people out simply enjoying a Saturday night. The attack came on the heels of a horrific suicide bombing at an Ariane Grande concert in the city of Manchester. ISIS has claimed responsibility for the attack at the Ariana Grande concert that killed 22 people. Then came word of an ISIS assault on the Iranian parliament that killed at least eight people and injured dozens of others. A series of two separate attacks in two separate locations in the capital, Tehran. One in the parliament building itself in central Tehran, and then another about 20 kilometers, 12 miles to the when we come back, I'll speak with a Pakistani man who was radicalized at a young age and almost gave his life in jihad. He'll tell us about how these groups twist ideas and words to grow terrorists. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. I'm in Pakistan, where we're talking about how terrorists are formed. Gaur Aftab was radicalized at a young age, even though he was a student at an elite Pakistani school. Now he works to prevent other youth from going down that same path. We sat down to talk about his journey. Thanks so much for being with me. Thanks for having me. So... Talking about terrorism, you you have some personal experience. You were radicalized at a very young age. Uh, yes, I was radicalized when I was 13, uh, back in 1997. Uh, it was a different form of radicalization, I think, than the kind that most young people are exposed to today, um, because that was in a very uh, international context. Now there's a lot of radicalization that targets um, young Muslim people living in within the countries in which they reside. Um, but I do think that there was a lot of commonalities between the uh, the narratives that were used to radicalize me uh, back in the day and the narratives used uh, right now across the world. But, but what happened? You were such a young kid. Um, you know, like most young kids, uh, you want to branch out, figure out what exactly it is that makes you who you are, makes you a Muslim, or, you know, for me, what makes me a Pakistani. 
Um, what does that mean in terms of the choices that I make? It's a struggle for identity. Um, and so when uh, when I wanted to, f- to figure out uh, what made me a Muslim, this was 1996 and 1997. Uh, so it was post-Afghan war. Uh, the U.S. had had kind of vacated Afghanistan and moved back into its own, uh, into pursuing their own self-interest. And we had a full-fledged um, militancy uh, in Afghanistan by the Taliban, taking up territory every single day. And they were, they were looked upon as heroes um, across a lot of the Muslim world, Pakistan included. Um, and there was also an entire uh, slew of Muslim hotspots in the world during the 90s. Um, there was the enduring problem of Palestine, the enduring issue of Kashmir, um, but there was also Bosnia, Kosovo, Chechnya, uh, all conflicts that were resolved very, uh, they were all bloody conflicts. They, they took up a lot of uh, Muslim lives, and these were used by, by radicalizers or propagandists um, to really play upon the fears of young Muslims. Um, the fears being that there is a clash of civilizations that is inevitable, um, that the West uh, represented by them to be a Christian empire similar to the time of the Crusades was out to get the Muslims uh, wherever and and however that they could find them. Um, and it was, it was sold to us when we went to figure out what it was to be a Muslim that um, to be a Muslim is to fight against this kind of repression or oppression that is endemic in the modern world um, and that is inevitable. You know, so if you're living in peace today, if you're a relatively well-to-do person or a middle-class person who doesn't really have to deal with the struggle of, um, of the underprivileged classes, um, it still mattered to you. Uh, there was still a fight that was, that was going to come to your, to your doorstep uh, that was going to potentially hurt you and your family members, uh, that there would be loss of property and life. And so it was imperative for a young Muslim to prepare for this war, prepare for this struggle, this clash of civilizations, um, and, and that was the entry point of my radicalization. And this was a teacher of yours that, that brought you down this road. Exactly. I mean, I think that I would probably be a very, a, not a very typical case uh, back then because I was studying at one of the most uh, privileged schools in Pakistan. Um, and uh, the teacher that I was exposed to, I mean, he was someone who had been teaching there for years and years, decades probably. Um, and the kind of the kind of subject matter that he taught us in our classroom um, didn't exist in any of our textbooks. It wasn't part of the curriculum in any way. Uh, it was an individual's effort to use the position that that he had um, to to gain support in whatever way. Um, and for most of my classmates, that would be the kind of support that they would give would be half-hearted. They weren't really uh, willing to sort of follow his line, but they would donate money. They would give up. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit of their lunch money for, to him after school. Um, but for me, it was very, you know, I was caught up in the romance uh, of, or the glamour uh, of, of being a fighter, of being someone who made a, a mark in this kind of struggle. Um, and it wasn't that I felt violence, you know, I felt, I felt no desire to hurt anyone. <coughs> but I did feel that it was my duty, uh, a divinely ordained duty for which just giving money or giving a little bit of my time was not sufficient. And so I definitely wanted to be involved in a military struggle. Uh, it took him a while to kind of come down, come around to the idea that I was serious, um, and and it took me maybe three weeks or four weeks of of badgering to get him to agree to to figure out a way uh, so that I could join up. Um, and ultimately, he came up with a plan where at the last day of school, I was supposed to go to his house, um, and then he would put me on a bus uh, to go up north to a training camp, accompanied by a former fighter. Um, I was to bring seven hundred rupees which back then I think was about $15 worth of money. 
uh, to pay for my ticket and to pay for my stay uh, until I got there. Um, and when I reached the camp, I was to write a letter uh, to my parents telling them what my intentions were and how I wanted to give up my life for, for the cause of jihad. Um, and I was all gung-ho, I was completely sold on this. It was only the interact, you know, it was only circumstances that kind of intervened um, to stop me from pursuing this kind of fate. But uh, I'm really glad it didn't happen. Um, and your parents showed up at the last minute. They did, but they had no idea what they were doing. They didn't really realize that I was, you know, on a ticket to <laughs> a ticket to a ticket up north. Ticket to eternity. A ticket to eternity. Ticket to, um, you know, maybe a lot of a, a, a terrible fate. So, I mean, I got lucky. I'm sure that there are millions of kids who aren't as lucky. And I'm sure that, you know, had I told my parents, they would have stopped me from this kind of action. Um, and there are lots of parents out there who probably wouldn't have stopped their children. Um, there are a lot of parents even now who, because of economic reasons or, you know, less ideological, but, you know, major for the majority economic reasons, they would encourage their child to join up because of the financial benefits it entailed. Um, you know. Explain that. What, what financial benefit? Um, you know, I, I had the opportunity later on in life to explore some of the strategies and some of the mechanisms by which recruitment happens for groups like this. Um, and what I found was I, most of my research happened in 2010 and 2011. Um, and back then, the, you know, there was a global recession that it hit, and it was, it was terrible economically for many families across Pakistan, many of whom uh, who didn't own the house in which they lived, uh, had more than eight to ten children. Um, and so for them, it was really a, a choice of hunger or, um, or sending their kid off to a, to a training camp. Um, and radical groups were already entrenched in these communities through decades of patronage that they provided. They would, you know, pay for your medical bills. They would, if you if you didn't have food a particular night, then they would come and give you food. They would rebuild your house if a flood hit or if there was a storm. Um, if your children needed to get married or if there was a funeral, they were there. Um, and so when they came knocking uh, to many of these families, you know, over the years, um, and said, "Why don't you give us one of your one of your children? We'll pay you close to ten thousand dollars." Uh, if they if they are martyred, quote unquote, um, and right off the bat, we'll give you a thousand dollars up front, um, and your child will be happy with us. We'll give them you know training. We'll we'll teach them about religion. Uh, we'll give them three meals a day, which is huge. Um, and so that's really how they how the how the trap is set. Um, it's decades of patronage, uh, and then an offer you can't refuse. So you are now focused on trying to stop these kids, trying to de-radicalize or, or provide a counter-narrative that points them in a new direction. Um, yeah, I would categorize my work as counter-radicalization. Um, so I'm not entirely sure how de-radicalization can be affected at a national level. Meaning, meaning after someone has been radicalized, turning them around as opposed to getting them before. Exactly. So I'm all about the before. Um, I, I think that there's been a sustained process over a number of decades to get um, Muslim populations um, to be open to these kind of radical ideologies. And I think that, you know, with a sustained effort over a similar, similar amount of time, um, we can counter that radicalization effect. Um, and, the, and the way that I'm doing it is through storytelling, uh, through, the, through building narratives in the media and, and through literature, uh, for kids to be exposed to a lot of those a lot of those similar ideas of what a Muslim is is supposed to do in, in the real world, what it means to be a Muslim or a Pakistani, um, and then give them the other side about how they can live a prosperous life and be meaningful to their community and, um, you know, fulfill the tenets of Islam without having to answer to, you know, a hateful 
kind of set of beliefs or or, or violent um, uh, call to action. We need to take a break. We'll be back with Gaur Aftab after this. I'm Lawrence Pintak. This is American Fault Lines. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines, reporting from Pakistan, where I sat down with Gaur Aftab, a man who almost became a terrorist as a boy, and who now works with others to prevent them from that same fate. So how much, you, you talk about the, the radical groups paying the families, how much of the motivation of this is economic, how much of it is religious, how much of it is political? So definitely, when I was radicalized um, close to 20 years ago, uh, it seemed like there were there were two types of of, of uh, radicalization efforts that were ongoing um, within the Pakistani context. One was um, the kind of ideological radicalization, you know, people gravitating towards Islam as a you know as a uh, as a tool of identity, as trying to figure out who they are. Uh, and then, of course, there was the economic marginalization that that gave only one route out. Um, what's happened now is that there is a major legacy of. Uh, 10 to 16 years of a war on terror, um, and that has created, you know, human debris all over the globe. Um, and I call them debris because really, you know, to, to, to think of them as, as rational human beings is to ask for too much. Um, if you lose your family uh, or your children or your property, um, everything overnight, um, there's really very little you can do to stop that individual um, from becoming hateful or, or being consumed by revenge. Um, and what this kind of what what a milit- militant group provides is the opportunity to get revenge, the opportunity to fight back. Um, and the, another thing that this radic- this radical group provides is a very uh, identifiable and uh, a very identifiable villain, um, which for most cases uh, is the uh, you know is the concept of a Western global empire. Um, but in many cases, it's also the local government, um, which they which they allege. Uh, have have been you know uh, have been taken over by foreign interests or allied themselves to the enemies of Islam and so on um, and so m- in many countries the local government is struggling to struggling for its own legitimacy and authority to even enter into this conversation um, and so you know I feel that uh, that in the modern day there are these three distinct groups um, that that are pushed towards radicalization. Um, one definitely identity, but I think that that is now, you know, in a post-war on terror world, uh, there are a lot fewer people out there who believe that there is some kind of moral obligation or, or moral superiority to the path of radical, uh, of violent extremism. Um, there are still a huge number of economically marginalized people for which this is a very doable choice. You know, it gives them authority, it gives them a stable income, it gives them some way out of poverty. Um, and I would say that that is still the most significant portion of recruits. Um, but your 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 active recruits, the people who are really on the front lines, the people who are who are uh, open to perpetrating all manner of of barbaric activities, are those who have their roots in the revenge motive. When we talk about Pakistan and these youth who are being radicalized, not the leadership, but at the ground, the grassroots level. How much of it is religion? How much do they understand the religion? 
Uh, I think there are huge, I mean, countries like Pakistan are non-Arab speaking countries. And so there's obviously going to be a huge uh, gap between the comprehension of Islam as a way of thought, as a philosophy of life, um, uh, you know, even as a set of laws uh, versus what's being sold to them as Islam. How culpable are the Saudis for what's going on here? I think that, you know, the the international Wahhabi nationalist movement <coughs> is something that includes Saudi Arabia, but also many um, Arab countries like the UAE, like Qatar, like Kuwait. Um, and and these are, you know, these are countries that jumped onto the bandwagon uh, later on, but effectively, this is part of a nationalist, uh, national, international movement um, to to brand Islam uh, as as Wahhabism, or sorry, sorry, to brand Wahhabism as Islam, um, because this is a very new ideology. The kind of Islam practiced by Saudi Arabia is almost, you know, less than two hundred years old, and the rest of Islam is almost fourteen hundred years old, um, and so to gain primacy, they've had to shut out opposition across the globe. Um, and that includes creating militant groups, that includes creating publishing houses, um, and, and the, the kind of oil wealth that the Arab countries have at their disposal has meant that since the 70s, they have now become the predominant voice of what Islam is. Um, and their version, um, it, may not be, it may not be a radical at, at the face of it, but compared to our version of Islam, or compared to you know, if if there is such a thing as can be called the real version of Islam, uh, it's very radical compared to that. How much do you think Trump's new uh, presidency is going to affect that game? Trump is the worst possible thing for optics that you know the world could have conceived. Um, someone who has branded himself an anti-Muslim is now in charge of the world's most powerful army and the world's most uh, arguably powerful nation. Obviously, this is used as evidence to show that there is a Western empire out there that is decidedly anti-Muslim um, and that is oppressive. And so, you know, with that, with that being, quote-unquote, proven um, by Trump's election uh, and by Trump's rhetoric and his remarks, um, these people are now expecting a wave of new recruits and a definitely a huge wave of support in terms of money. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks a lot. That wraps up this show. Thanks to my producer, Dave Bourne. Our theme music is by Dutch percussionist Ruben van Rompuy. I'm Lawrence Pintak. Follow me on Twitter at L-P-I-N-T-A-K. Visit AmericanFaultLines.com and let us know what you think of the series. Download the podcast of this and previous episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And join us again next time when we explore more American Fault Lines. (laughs) 